What a friendly group of people. Well, good morning, New Life East. You guys are saying good morning to one another, being good people. Good to see some of you. We're so glad that you've joined us. Feel free to take a seat. We are wrapping up this weekend uh, a series of talks that we've been doing on the book of 1 Timothy. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. That's where we're going to spend our time today. That's the last chapter in 1 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be up here on the screen in just a moment. Um, but before we step into the scriptures, um, many of you have been paying attention in the news this morning. You've recognized or even watching it late into the evening last night that um, there was a tragic shooting here in Colorado Springs. Five people lost their lives. Thirteen or so were injured at a nightclub here. And uh, it's been picked up on the national news. You can read about it. If you type it into Google, you'll find it and you can read everything that's going on. But um, what we believe is that as the church, um, when there is a loss of life, among humanity, it is devastating to God himself. That God is filled with sadness and emotion at the idea that life would be terminated in an instant. And so what we do as the church in these kinds of moments is we stand together with the community that we find ourselves in, mourning with those who mourn, weeping with those who weep, and lifting them up to God, asking that God would bring peace and rest and clarity into the lives of these families. So church, would you do me the honor this morning? Would you pray with me as we lift up the families of those who have experienced such loss? God, we, when there is loss of life, we are without words. So what we ask this morning is that you would be the God that we know you to be, which is the God who transcends time and space, who transcends circumstances, and who sits with those who are weeping. So God, we ask that you would be with the families of those who have lost loved ones this morning. That those people would know that they are loved by the God of the universe but by that same God who is willing to come and sit in the dirt with them, who's willing to mourn with them. God, we know that your heart breaks as you see violence unfold among humanity. We know that your heart breaks when you see anger and hatred and vitriol unfold. So God, we, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon all of us. Fill us with love, joy, peace, patience. Would you give us eyes to see those who are hurting in our community? And more than ever, would the church become a space where those who are hurting can find refuge, where those who are in pain can find a home, where those who are, who are scared and alone and concerned would know that there is a city on a hill that is shining bright so that they can see in the dark. Would you make us those people? God, we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the entire church said, amen, amen. Like I said, we are in 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is where we're going to be for most of our time. 
this morning. And we've been walking through this letter that Paul has written to his close friend, Timothy. Timothy has become somewhat of an apprentice, apprentice under Paul, and he's learning from Paul. And so Paul writes this pastoral letter to Timothy. And, and Timothy is different than some of the other letters that we read in the New Testament that are written by Paul, because a, church, a letter like Romans would have been sent to the church in Rome. They would have grabbed this document with excitement. They would have opened it up before the entire church and started to read it out loud. And everyone would have heard it. But a letter like 1 Timothy is a document that Timothy would have received probably in private, and he would have began to read over it. And as he's reading it, what I think is important to know is that Timothy, because he's a pastor, he's a caretaker, what would have happened is as Paul challenged him or called things out or, or encouraged him to do things, he would have begun to see the faces of people who actually sit in his congregation. This is not sort of an impersonal document. This is very personal. Timothy can see the faces of those that he's with. And so Paul, in this last little section, right in the middle of it, he, he says these words, starting at the end of verse 2. He says, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. You can see something that Paul is really concerned about here is that somewhere in the midst of the teaching in the church of Ephesus, not by Timothy, but just the sort of rumblings that are going on, is that somehow the gospel has gotten connected to financial gain. And Paul sees a problem with that. He says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Everyone say contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Womp, womp. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say money is the root of evil. He says the love of it is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have actually wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Friends, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. So you can imagine as Timothy is reading this, he's starting to see the faces of people in his congregation. And there's sort of like a thesis statement right here. Timothy reads it and it says, contentment and godliness, that is great gain. Godliness and contentment. These are the sort of character traits that Paul wants to encourage Timothy to help see, to help pastor, to come out of people. But this thesis statement, this little chunk that we just read, actually sits between two more challenging chunks of scripture. The first is when Paul writes to Timothy and encourages him to consider how he is pastoring those who are actually slaves in his church. This is what Paul writes to him. He says, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. He goes on, those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. Listen, I don't think you thought you would come to church and we would talk about slavery, but we're going to. 
This is an interesting passage of scripture because for many people who experience tension with Christianity, many people who experience just tension with the Bible, there are passages like this that create some trouble in us. We read it and Paul is writing to people who are, who's a, writing to Timothy who's a pastor who's meant to think about those who are slaves in his church, which raises the question, like, does the Bible just sort of give a, a stamp of okay onto slavery and just sort of say like, well, you know, it's just, it's just going on, it's just kind of okay, let's move forward. A couple of things that I want to point out, because I don't want to just skirt by this, because I actually think him talking to slaves has larger implications for this whole passage. When we think about slavery, certain images start to come to mind, right? We think of a miniseries like Roots that came out in the, the 80s. We start to think about a movie like 12 Years a Slave, or we think about even the book by Colson Whitehead, The Underground Railroad. We, we, we have these visuals about slavery that for most of us in America are directly connected to what would be known as the transatlantic slave, right? It's slave trafficking that connected to the Civil War. That's the visuals that come to mind. Black bodies being kidnapped, put on boats, brought across here to America. That's not to say that what's going on in the Bible is completely different, but it is got some nuance to it. Slaves in the Roman Empire, which is where Ephesus would find itself, are, are not slaves in that they have been kidnapped from a foreign land and brought in. Most of those slaves that we're aware of would be what we would call like a bond servant. So there's someone who is, for whatever reason, entered into debt or a difficult circumstance financially with someone, and the way that they are attempting to get out of said debt, the way that they're attempting to sort of reset their life, is they have given themselves or have been forced into some sort of servanthood to pay off this debt. Doesn't make it good, doesn't make it better. It's slavery nonetheless, but there's a bit of a nuance to it. It's interesting too, because in the Roman Empire, slaves were not sort of this minority group over here. In fact, some people think that in Timothy's church, there could have been up to 50% of his congregation sitting in there as slaves. Because what we know about the Roman Empire is close to 50 million people in the Roman Empire were classified as slaves. So what Paul's writing about here is not just sort of this weird sort of small thing going on. It's a large group of people, which is why Paul writes to slaves so frequently in many of his letters, or he has something to say to them about how they live and how they act. Which raises, though, the question of like, so Paul writes about it, even in these verses that we just read. He's not, he doesn't tell the slaves, you know, go start a revolution, you know, tear the system down, although I kind of wish that he would have as I read it. He doesn't say that to him. He, he just starts to sort of challenge the way that they live. And it's interesting. This is why people tend to just go, well, the Bible just condones slavery and that's the end of it. What's interesting though about the Bible, the people of God are not foreigners to the idea of slavery. The story of Israel throughout history is that they would find themselves constantly enslaved or in exile and their God was the God who would come along and set them free because for humanity to be enslaved wasn't okay. And as we read in the New Testament, we find that constantly Paul is not just sort of calling out discipleship in slaves, but he's pretty consistently challenging those who own slaves. In fact, in 1 Timothy, in the very first chapter, we didn't preach on this in this series, but in the very first chapter, Paul lists slaveholding, slave trading right in the same category as he does all of those people who are sexually immoral and violent and greedy. He lumps those people in there. So he doesn't condone it. What we know about the Roman Empire as well is that as the church began to grow and expand, the Roman Empire began to slowly deplete in its ownership 
of slaves. Something about the lived way of Jesus in the world began to challenge this idea that it was okay to own and possess another human. In fact, we see in the book of Philemon, the small letter that Paul wrote to someone who held slaves, his challenge to him, the whole letter is basically him just going, I've met one of these men that you own as a slave. And the only proper response for you to the world is to set him free. So the Bible doesn't condone slavery by any stretch of the imagination. Some people would even say the New Testament presents this massively radical ethic for what were known as slaves at the time. But what we do see is that Paul doesn't write to these slaves telling them that what they're experiencing needs to change. He just starts writing and discussing with them how to live well in the midst of these atrocious circumstances. So what does he say to them? He says, listen, you have masters who are lording over you. Serve them more than they ever deserve to be served. And for us who have never been slaves and never experienced that, it feels a little, it makes us flinch a little bit. Why wouldn't you just tell them no revolt against those people? He says, serve them. And I think part of the reason that he does that is what he's trying to get people to grab is that the way you follow Jesus is you live as Jesus would in this circumstance. So he says to them, I can't change your circumstance. There's no sort of like document I could write that would shuffle the deck on this. But what I can challenge you with is live well in the midst of those circumstances. So Paul, the first group of people he recognizes are the slaves in this church. The next group, though, that he refers to are those who are not financially well off, who are poor in the church, who are struggling financially, whose bank account doesn't even know what a comma is. That'll be funny for some of you later. He's talking to those who are in difficult situations. So he's saying, listen, the way you're to live is you don't pursue wealth as a way of getting to the gospel. What he does is saying, your, your goal, your security in the kingdom of God is not tied up in how much money you do or do not have. So he talks to the slaves, he talks to the poor, and then at the end of this section, he talks to those who are wealthy. We can throw those verses up on the screen. Verse 17, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in what? God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He goes on, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous. Everyone say generous. And willing to share. And if they do that, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Can I tell you guys something this morning? What's so interesting about what Paul does here? He writes to Timothy, helping him pastor this congregation. He makes him see the slaves who are in the room. He makes him think about those who are not financially well off in his space. And he makes him think about the, the super wealthy, the ones who have more commas than they know what to do with. What we learn from this section of scripture is simply this, that God is equally interested in the discipleship and well-being of those that are down and out as he is with those who are up and in. He's not sort of like compartmentalizing in the kingdom of God who is more important, who's worth God's time. What we discover is that God is equally concerned with everyone's well-being 
Whether you have a lot of money, you have no money, and the money that you're earning is going to a slave master. He is equally concerned with everyone in the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but for me, that's good news. And it's good news because I don't know where all of us find ourselves in this current moment. Maybe you're in here and you, you connect with those who are financially struggling. You're, you're one of the people who every week you just hope you have enough to sort of squeak by. Maybe for you, what's created financial hardship, maybe you've lost a job recently. And you're trying to figure out how to make ends meet. You're trying to figure out what's next. And the things that begin to happen in our minds is we begin to believe the lie that because we don't have a ton of money, because we're not super financially well off, that God is maybe just not that interested in us. We've got something, but it's not great. So God's just kind of like, hey, I know it's hard for you. I don't have anything all that great for you. Maybe you're someone in the room who's extremely wealthy. You're doing great financially. And congrats, I'd love to know your secrets. Maybe you're doing great. You know what God says about you? Your money has not caused you to graduate from the kingdom of God. You have not sort of outgrown the discipleship of Jesus because you have money in the bank. You have not worked your way up the ladder and now you can just kind of ignore what Jesus has to say. I don't know what the common equivalent of a slave is in modern day society, but what I can think about is what a slave must have felt, which was like they had these circumstances that were pressing in on them so hard every day, every, every night consistently. They go to bed thinking about how much longer will it be, and some of you are in situations like that right now as well, where things have been sort of thrust upon you, and you're not sure what's next. You're not even sure if you can make it to what's next because it just feels like you're getting pounded by it over and over and over again. God is not less interested in you. God isn't looking at you going, well, you're really worn out and exhausted, so I don't have anything good for you. Listen, friends, God is equally concerned with the discipleship and well-being of those on the down and out as he is with those on the up and in. And this is good news. I think about a picture I ran across the other day. This is a picture. I was 19 in this photo. Sitting on the ground, that's my wife. She was 18. We had, uh, she was spending the summer interning at this, this facility in the northwest corner of Haiti. And I went down for a week, and we were hanging out, and there's this little boy you can see sitting across both of our laps. His name's Joshua, and Joshua is this loud, gregarious, joyful little boy. But Joshua was born with an intellectual disability of some sort, and he was also born with club feet. So in Haiti, it was pretty common practice that if a child is born with an intellectual disability or a physical disability, is that it probably means that that child is cursed. And you need to do something about it. So his parents took him to a witch doctor. And a witch doctor would do all sorts of experiments. They would do any number of things from making them eat or drink certain things, uh, announcing rituals over them, praying curses to try to get the curses out. It doesn't make any sense. But it was go as far as the idea that, well, if this child is cursed and he's been born into your family, the only way you can eradicate the curse is to eradicate the child. So things like 
attempting to burn them alive so that the curse would disappear. Even things as far as child sacrifices. And this mom of Joshua had tried all sorts of things and nothing worked. Much to her surprise, nothing changed. This was who her son was. And so the way that she would make the most of Joshua's disability is she would prop him up on a street corner every day and he would sit out there begging for money and for food. Joshua, though, is, has, has a difficult jaw thing going on, so his speaking isn't all there. So you, what she did was essentially sit this helpless kid out on a street corner, hoping that someone would come by and give him food and money and it would benefit their family. In fact, in 2010, Joshua was sitting on a street corner when all of a sudden the ground began to shake and buildings began to topple over as the big earthquake that happened in Haiti in 2010. And Joshua found himself underneath the rubble of a building that had collapsed. And this, these members of this ministry came by and they found him. They took him in and took him to this hospital that they had and tried to get him taken care of. And Um, They've kept him in this home to take care of him, give him food, shelter, a place to live, a place to sleep, a place to be cared for. You know what's interesting, though, about this photo is um, what's happening in this photo, in its truest form, is discipleship. What Joshua is experiencing in this moment of, like, love and physical touch and care and kindness is that there is, in fact, a God who cares for him. That there is, in fact, a God who is as big as he can imagine who, is, who cares about Joshua enough that he would bring people in and out of his life who can love him and care for him and speak goodness into his life, that they would love him regardless of his physical circumstances, his mental disabilities, that there would just be people who would show up and those people become the church, the very body of Christ for him and sit and spend time with them. For, for Joshua, discipleship is unfolding. His heart, his mind is being transformed to understand the things of God whether he is even fully aware of it or not. But there's also discipleship happening in this photo because you want to know what's happening to Rory in this photo? I'm realizing maybe for the first time that I am not better than anybody. That because my legs work and I can speak somewhat clearly and my brain seems to function at at least a normal level, I'm still not better than that little boy. That God is not somehow more interested in me than he is in him. That God is somehow looking at both of us as sons of God with love and compassion and care. Discipleship is unfolding and it's not biased. God doesn't look at me and go, I know you paid $3,000 to come and sit in a third world country. Let me take care of you. Versus this boy who was found under the rubble of a building. Friends, God is not more or less interested in one of our well-being and discipleship than he is of the other. Those of you who find yourself rich and wealthy and doing well financially, God loves you, but not more than he loves those who have been pressed down and oppressed and who are unwealthy. Same way on the other side. God does not look at the poor and the broken and the marginalized as better somehow than those who are not. We all stand at equal footing at the foot of the cross. This is, my friends, the good news of the gospel. This is what you have been saved into. This is what the church itself is, is a gathering of people from all of those spaces who then are viewed as one body. And the incredible thing 
is that what Paul does, what he challenges this group of people with, is the same thing. So he looks at the slaves and the poor and the wealthy. And he says, if you want to follow Jesus with this stuff, here's how you do it. It's contentment and it's generosity. It's contentment and it's generosity. These are the two words. And listen, for us, we often hear that and we go, yeah, that's true. Because, you know, the way we think about generosity is like, well, I'll be generous once I'm content. But what we really mean is I'll be generous once I have an abundance of wealth. And then I'll just start doling out money left and right. I'll become a philanthropist and write big checks and everyone will feel thankful that I'm in their presence. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying generosity and contentment are two sides of the same coin. They go together. But contentment in the truest form. And they're both ways in which we look out into the world. So what contentment does, when we say we're going to live with contentment, it's us going, you know what? I am good with exactly what I have. Nothing more, nothing less. So it's not saying, you know, I just need to give everything away. I need to go live as a, as a hermit out in the middle of nowhere. It's not saying that necessarily. And it's certainly not saying I need to accumulate more wealth and then I'll be content. We all know that that's not true. The greatest lie that most of us believe is one more dollar will make us content. So Paul says it's not that. He says contentment's one side of the coin, but the other side of the coin is generosity. And you can't have generosity without contentment. He says to be generous is to look out into the world, recognizing that I have enough and now I can give it away. I would say this, this way, generosity is an impossible posture if you lack true contentment. It's impossible. If what you are doing is constantly looking at yourself and going, I just don't have enough. I just don't have enough. You will never go, well, then you have some of it. You just won't be able to do it. Generosity without contentment is impossible. So here's what, here, here's what happens though. Paul presents this challenge to those who are wealthy. He says to them, let's, uh, let's go to, sorry guys, I'll read it. We killed the slide last time. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17. He says, command those who are rich in this present age, in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Who does Paul address? He says it pretty specifically. Command those who are what? Rich. Rich where? In this present age. Now, when we think about who's actually rich among us, our brains tend to go to this idea of like the 1%, right? We're like, well, the people who are rich, like they've got a lot of money. So like they're sitting, you know, 800, 900,000, a million dollars. They're raking it in every year. They're doing great. When we think about that though, we tend to think about it through the lens of like the developed world. So we think, you know, who's rich in the developed world? Well, people who make like a million dollars a year. It's interesting though, a study was done a number of years ago where they wanted to figure out who is like in the top 1% if you evaluate it globally. So not just the developed world, but even in the undeveloped world, who sits in the top 1%? You know how much money you had to make in a year to sit in the top 1% in the world and be considered wealthy in this study? $34,000. So let's play a game, shall we? Don't raise your hands because that would get weird. I don't want to know your salaries. If you make over $30,000 a year, 
by global standards, you are rich. So is Paul talking to you? Yes, good start. This game's going to go well. In fact, if you woke up this morning and you woke up and you like stretched and yawned and you had this piece of fabric, this thick fabric with like stuff inside of it laying on top of you, we call it a blanket, and it was on top of you and you were like, I'm going to take this off because I'm too warm right now and I'm going to get out of bed. You're rich. If after you tossed that blanket off, you got out of your bed and you walked to this small room that you have in your house where you go to the restroom and you don't just like go to the restroom in a hole in the floor, you have like a, a porcelain throne in there. It's called a bathroom. Some of you have these. You're rich. And if after you were done doing whatever you did in the bathroom, you turned like maybe to your right a little bit and there was this other container where water comes down and you thought to yourself, you know, before I go in public today, I should smell better. And you got in it and you took a shower, you're rich. If after that shower you went, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put some clothes on. And you walked to this other room in your house and you opened it up and there were more clothes than you know what to do with. In fact, some of you thought to yourself, I have nothing to wear. <laughs> some of you, that room, that little, little hideaway spot, you can actually walk into yours and like do a full spin. It's so big. You're rich. If after that you thought to yourself, you know, before I leave today, I should have a snack. And you walked down or to this room in your house that you just keep abundance of food in there. There's closets full of chips. You got a fridge that has all your cold food in it. You got a freezer that has all the even colder food in it. You're rich. And then right before you left with your family, your kids and your spouse, who I know you all walked out of there so peacefully and you got to church on time. You guys went to this other room that's sort of off of your house and you opened the door and you had multiple options of which car to bring here today. You're rich. Why do I say all that? Not to sort of be flippant about the fact that there are those of us who struggle financially and make things hard to connect. I get that. Most of us, by this standard, are wealthy. And what that means is that the call to be generous is not limited only to those that you think are wealthy. The call to be generous expands to who? All of us. The call to be content with what we actually possess extends to who? All of us. It's not exclusive to the people that you've seen drive a nice car it's not exclusive to the people that you think make more money than you. The call to contentment and generosity is for everyone who stands under the cross of Jesus. This is what it is, friends. You know what's interesting, though? Paul didn't, like, make this up. Paul's a pretty smart guy, but uh, he actually got most of this idea from this rabbi named Jesus that we occasionally talk about. Some of you know this, when Jesus at one point was preaching, he was on the side of a mountain and he was talking to some of his closest friends and disciples, he, he looked out to the crowd and he spoke these words to them. He said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moss and vermin destroy, 
and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermins do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which, by the way, side note, I've got time to say this. Completely contradictory to what most of us believe. Most of us believe where our heart is, then everything follows. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus, in fact, says, if you want to show me where your heart is, just show me where you spend your money. He says, where your treasure is, is where your heart follows. So if you spend all your money at Chick-fil-A, some of y'all are worshiping at the idol of the red chicken. I get it. If you spend all your money on cars, Jesus says, I know what you value. Jesus' challenge is not, hey, I know what you want in your heart. He says, I'll I'll tell you what you want in your heart. Just show me your account. Moving on. The eye is the lamp of the body. I want you to catch this. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Hold there for a second. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are healthy, that word for healthy there, what it can often be translated as is whole or complete, the way that we would think about healthy, right? Someone who's like got, it's all together, their life is good, their physical health is in good shape, their mental health, emotional health. But when it gets attached to a command like this, a better way to translate it, a better way to understand it is not as healthy as in like whole. The way that the Greeks would often translate this word is not healthy, it's generous. So think about what Jesus is actually saying here. He's saying if your eyes are generous, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, if you are looking out into the world with generous eyes, with eyes that are saying, I know what I have is enough, your body, your soul, who you are internally will be full of light. And then he raises the stakes in the next verse. He says, but if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and God and the point with God, with Jesus is that there is no God and it's not God and money. The word for money there is a word that they would use for like a false God, a demon. The word is mammon. It's the idea that what people were doing was they were worshiping both God and money and what they were actually doing was falling in worship to a false idol. What Jesus presents, the challenge to us, is that if we choose to ignore being content or being generous with what we have, what we will eventually do is not be worshiping God at all. It's a terrifying thing. So the challenge gets presented to us as what do we do with this? We should be content with what we have, that's great. We should be generous with what we do have. We should be fine with it, that's, that's fantastic. What it forms in us is, is discipleship and Jesus is concerned about our, our well-being. Here's the practical application today, friends, and something to celebrate. Last service, I ended this message by challenging our people to go adopt a family. We had close to 40 families that were available to be adopted who, weren't, who would not have a Christmas if it wasn't for the people of New Life East. And here's what's incredible, nine o'clock, sponsored all 40 of those families. 
So the way I was supposed to end this sermon for you was here's the application, go sponsor a family. But now I can't do that. So I don't know how to end it, I'm just kidding. Here's the challenge. We stood around, myself, Colin, and and some of our, our leaders at New Life, and we just said, well, what can we actually do then? What can we like do beyond that? What does it look like for us to truly be generous? To go above and beyond that. And what our team has done is out on the table in the lobby, you'll notice that there are tags that you can still pick up. They're not for adopting a specific family. What we've decided we're gonna do is put as many extra things in those gifts bags as we can. Some of those families have a hard time knowing where their groceries are gonna come from week to week. So we're gonna give people the ability to buy grocery cards for these families. Some of them, some of them because they're in such difficult financial straits have never had the ability as single moms or as moms and dads who are working so many hours to just take their kids to go have fun. So there's, there's tags that you can pick up to just help a family go have fun for 50 bucks. Here's my challenge to you today is to not fall into the trap when you leave here of not doing anything with what you do have. Most sermons like this end with a call for you to give to the church. I'm not asking you to do that today. I'm asking you to give to the families who are outside of this church, who sit in our very communities, who sit in our services, who go to school at Grand Peak, who are part, who are a part of what we do. This is my challenge to you. Stop by that table, grab a tag, and let's overwhelm these families with generosity this Christmas. Sounds good? Stand where you are. We're gonna step back into worship in just a moment, but before we do that, there's no better place to direct our understanding of true generosity than at the table of the Lord. Because there's no one thing that gives us a clear picture of what it looks like for God to be generous to us. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. This is in God's character. And so what we do in this moment, as people who come from financially difficult spaces, for people who come from financially prosperous spaces, from people who feel like life is just crushing us down, we come to the table and say, God, we are content with you. Maybe we struggle to be content with everything else, but God, we are content with you. So in a moment, our servers are gonna come up front. You're gonna come down the, the right side of each section that you're in. If you're in this section, you'll come down here, this section right here, this one right here. There will be servers down at the front. They're gonna have a wafer that represents Jesus's body, which is broken for you. You're gonna take one of those wafers and you're gonna dip it into the cup, which is a symbol of the blood of Jesus that has been poured out for you as the new covenant, the new promise of who he is. And you're gonna take that wafer back to your seat and you're gonna eat with your family, with your friends. You're gonna pray, you're gonna receive the gift that is God to us this morning. So servers, if you wanna go ahead and step forward, New Life East, let me go ahead and pray for you this morning. God, we are so humbled by the kind of God that you are. That it was in fact your discontentment with the way the world was that you sent Jesus. And that he came as a sacrifice for us to redeem what had been lost. So God, this morning we come to you that exact way. We come to you humble. We come to you open and willing to receive. I pray over the families in this room who feel financial struggle and pressure in their life. Would you grow some sense of contentment in them? 
And would you cause generosity to explode from their hearts? For those who are wealthy in this space, would they recognize that the gift, the spiritual gift of generosity has been placed on their shoulders? To be the people who provide something to this church, to these people, to the people of Grand Peak, to the people on the east side of the city that they could not figure out on their own. And God, we too, we pray over the people in this room who feel crushed down, pressed, like they're, they are discontent as far as it can go. Would you draw contentment out of them as you draw near to them? We ask all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. You can go ahead and come forward for communion.